This is the Sydney Review of Books podcast. I'm the SRB editor, Katrina Menzies-Pike. Welcome to our podcast about Australian books and writers. Our poems come from a different place. They are land-centric, post-canonical and kinship connective. And you can see that throughout the whole book. This book has broken all the rules but in such a brilliant way where that relationality of our ancestors kinship and asserting that sovereign connection to time place and soil that's teela reed and marinda dutton the co-founders of blackfella book club on this episode of the srb podcast teela and marinda talk about the online community they've built around first nation storytelling and together they'll discuss their experiences of reading firefront an anthology of poetry and essays curated by Alison Whitaker. With Blackfella Book Club, Teela and Marinda have used Instagram to create a community that foregrounds First Nations writers and readers. They're part of a lively cultural ecology that's thriving online, one that involves writers, readers, critics, publishers, and all kinds of literary organisations, including the SRB. This digital literary world isn't limited to websites and journals. You'll find it on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Goodreads. These are the places that readers gather to talk about books, especially now when book clubs are run via Zoom and writers' festivals have given way to podcasts and live streams. It's a real gift to hear Tilla and Marinda's reflections. As they say in the episode, Firefront is all about truth-telling. It's about seeing and hearing and reading the world through powerful First Nations perspectives. Listen up, and please note, this episode contains names and references to deceased persons. My name is Marinda Dutton. I'm a Gumbengi and Barkindji woman, and I'm the co founder of Blackfella Book Club. And Yama, I'm Teela Reed. I am a proud Wiradjuri and Wawan woman, and I am also the co founder of Blackfella Book Club. So, Blackfella Book Club is an Instagram platform which celebrates First Nations storytelling, and in doing so, deconstructs the idea about what a book club is meant to be by celebrating all forms of storytelling. Reading is a privilege. Writing is a privilege. Through Instagram, we are allowing people to connect in stories in many different ways. It was just about creating a really culturally safe space to tell First Nations stories and, of course, you know, what underpins our platform is that we are honouring our ancestors as the original storytellers. So much of what happens in relation to First Nations stories is that they get taken out of context and people talk about them in ways that are superficial and romanticised an important thing about Blackfella Book Club is that we get to talk about our stories and that they don't get superseded by the white gaze. The platform certainly is not there to make non-Indigenous feel good. It's just simply to share the reality and the truth-telling of our stories. And Firefront is a piece of work that will challenge the reader. The book Firefront doesn't try to be a certain thing. It's not just a book of poetry. 
it is a book of poetry essays but it also has songs in it and it really forces you to challenge your concept about what poetry is and what poetry is not. I myself have never really experienced a book like this. It does put on paper things that I would not be able to articulate in a way that's done so collectively. The collection has so many individual reflections, but then like this collective power that even where pieces might not nicely fit together, there is something so powerful in the force of them. In so many ways, when I read the book as an Aboriginal person, I feel like it shows me a part of myself. And it makes me feel seen because it puts words on paper that I would never be able to express. And I think for Aboriginal people reading this, it's a task in finding healing and in finding yourself. Every reader will take away their own different experience and lessons. Every time I turn to it. I am drawn to two particular essays. I'm not sure why. The first essay that just really hooked me was by Evelyn Arlewin. But most recently, the one that has really grabbed my spirit is the essay by Ali Cobby Eckerman. And I think there is just so something so powerful in this essay, which is titled Medicine In, Obligation Out. And Ali says, Some of the best poems that I've ever heard were shared around a campfire at the Aboriginal Writers' Retreat, a small venture I created in 2009 at my home on Najuri country in Kalunga. Their writers then chucked them into the flames. People said they didn't want them published. And I just thought that was just so telling of the sacredness of our stories. There's this real kind of goal in storytelling is to get published, is to get writer, is to create a book. And I just think that that part of the essay really flipped it upside down and just said to the world, actually, we will write, we will create, we go back to the campfire. But in fact, what we create is not always meant to be shared. That's, I think, what makes Firefront even more of a gift. Writers have chosen to put their words down on paper. It's just such a blessing that we have it as a collection, particularly coming off the back of the Black Summer of Fires. You know, then we had the Black Lives Matter movement and then the pandemic, and it almost seems... The book was inevitable in coming out in the year 2020. But I think it also, given that it is a collection that spans time, it speaks to the fact that Aboriginal writing and Aboriginal storytelling always has relevance to whatever time it is. And I think Firefront opens up a window to a world that non-Aboriginal people may never have borne witness to. And I think that this book certainly is a challenge to the everyday Australian reader because it's not something that is intended to massage the reader's ego. It's a book that makes you go inside yourself 
and then look out to the world through that window and go, perhaps I haven't been interpreting the world like others do it. And and I think that the place to start to challenge that as we contextualised in 2020 is absolutely the time to start thinking and reshaping the world from a powerful First Nations perspective. In the context of 2020, we're all in this collective experience of trying to find meaning and feeling like we have the space to reconnect to ourselves. And I think poetry is a beautiful way of exploring that. And this book is a beautiful place to start. The book has just been so beautifully structured with respect to the essays that frame the pieces of work. There's this essay by Evelyn Arulowin, which is Too Little Too Much, that I just cannot get enough of because every time I read it, there's something that resonates in a different way. And I guess it also makes non-Aboriginal people think twice about the way in which Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander peoples have always been poets and always been storytellers. And often our ability to fit into that expectation has been framed by the Western world. Evelyn Erlewin soars through the fact that we are the original poets. She says, Aboriginal poetics have always existed. The song lines still hum in the soil while we read and write upon. Aboriginal poetics have always been caught within the gaze of too little, too much. And one of the examples she gives is the great Ujuru Nunaku's work. It will continue to live on. But this concept of being too little, too much, Evelyn says, Ujuru Nunaku's work attracted within and beyond the nation. The poems of protest, remembrance and celebration she performed on the shores of her beloved Minjeriba. And for the Federal Council for the Advancement of Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders alike, articulated something unsettling in white Australian literary culture. In Evelyn's essay, what I liked was what she said about the ways that our poems come from a different place and in that they are land-centric, post-canonical and they are kinship-connective. And you can see that throughout the whole book. The essays and the poems, they all speak to the land and a lot of the poems actually speak to people's heritage where people say who their ancestors are and where they fit in in terms of kinship structures. And I think that is one of the quite beautiful things about the whole book. It is just a collection of kinship and connection and interrelatedness. You look at this book and you reflect on the Western ways which are expected of us and just go, this book has broken all the rules but in such a brilliant way where that relationality of our ancestors' kinship and 
asserting that sovereign connection to time, place and soil, I think, is just such a piece of work that speaks to truth. A lot of the poems spoke to the ancestors and honoured their truths in ways that our stories have not been honoured throughout history. And I thought that was a really beautiful thing about the book, the way that it held space for these stories that haven't been allowed to be told. And I think even in addition to this kind of relationality that underpins each of the work to time, space and and ancestors, there are actually so many pieces of work speak directly to the lived experiences of Blackfellas in racist systems and racist institutions. And one of those pieces of work that really stood out for me is the piece titled Behind Enemy Lines by Provocals and Ancestress. It's kind of, you know, two, three quarters of the way through the book. And so you've kind of gotten to this point and you've gone through this real strong connection with yourself and ancestors and you come to this piece behind enemy lines and it just really rips apart the truth about how racism operates in systems and the opening of it is kept in solitary confinement for 23 and a half hours a day, for 15 days straight. He's lost all sense of time and he's deeply distressed. The boy's been asking the guards repeatedly for weeks why he's been kept in solitary confinement, when he's going to be released from his dark, hot, stinking cell. Publicas. Fuck a royal commission, brah. These royals commission the invasion, the genocide, the conditions where we're prisoners of war, the system at its core. That just really sets the context for Ancestress on page 138 responds and writes, Hey, Mr. PM, we all know you turned your back when you first seen them. But still, you pretend, dance around your lies and your policies in our baby's eyes. Spirits dance around campfires, corroborees. Don't you see? This is still daylight robbery. Nobody's free. I am a criminal defence lawyer and the way in which this piece is delivered reflects the reality of exactly what's happening now in our communities. No one is talking about things like solitary confinement in the state of New South Wales. And I think that this piece really brings home that extra level of truth for us. These systems and these institutions are built on our soil and the invasion and the confinement and the racism and the systems continue to operate. When you were talking, it made me think of the poem by Dylan Buller, who people might remember from the Four Corners piece on Don Dale. And he says, I quote, When I close my eyes, I feel the hits to my head, but don't get me started on all the abuse and torment. I was only 11 years. I didn't know if it was right or wrong. But what I know now is these assaults went on for way too long. It acknowledges in so many ways that 
poetry is all around us. It is within us. And we all have that image of Dylan Vola at Dondale that was screened across Australia. And when you think of his name, that's the image that surfaces. And then you read something that he has written and you just think, wow, the country watching that image would not appreciate in that moment the truth he just put on paper here. There is just a fundamental truth to the poetry in Firefront. There's no fanfare about it and it doesn't try to be something that it's not. It just is the truth and I think that's what makes it so powerful. And when I think about the one by Ancestress, it made me think of the theme of fire and that particular poem just totally incinerates you and it leaves your soul bare. The whole theme of the firefront and of fire feels really appropriate and apt. Alison Whitaker, who's the incredible editor of the entire collection, speaks to this. Reading each of the pieces, they really do incinerate pieces of your body. Alison is quite upfront that this is just not even scratching the surface of storytelling and poetics in our community and that that's why, you know, people must, if they've never had the opportunity to kind of sit around a campfire or read First Nations poetry and essays, that this is the piece to start with. And Alison says in her introduction, you know, the relationality of Firefront is also not only good ways, but fundamentally addresses the question of the coloniser. How to tussle with the settler colony and to account for just what both have wrought on us. The fire is as much a threat of reckoning with what is improperly imposed as it is an offer for restoration and insurrectionist. And I just think, wow, this is, you know, not just a reckoning. This is so much more of a gift to readers. And she says, Indigenous poetry is a collective task, passing the fire from one front to another. And so this introduction can't stand alone or claim to speak for any of the poems We can't speak for the poems, but we can only speak to our experiences of the poems. The poems actually speak to each other. For example, I love that they have Archie Roach took the children away and then the children came back by Briggs. And I thought that was a really beautiful relatedness. There are a lot of cross-references between poems. We're always talking to each other. First Nations poetry is never just a task in individuality. It is always a task in collectivity and relationality and the way that we understand ourselves in relation to others. 
for me, that's what this book showcases. In another section of the book, there are two separate poems, both written to Dennis Walker. And Dennis Walker was an Aboriginal activist and freedom fighter. The first poem is called Son of Mine, written by his mother, Uju Nunakul, in 1986. And then completing the cycle is Grandfather of Mine, that's written by his granddaughter, Elizabeth Walker, in 2018. To me, it speaks to timelessness. It's almost as if that was always the way those poems were meant to exist. There is a timelessness to everything and that all times are forever. And we will always be a future ancestor and a descendant in the same moment. And the concept of the present is a Western one. When you take the view that time is not linear, that we are both here and not here, and that we are both in the future and in the past, the fear that you might feel around the inevitability of life and death goes away. I think the other thing that comes through so strongly in this collection is that we are not superior. So many of the pieces of work through language and through asserting their sovereignty in terms of their stories also bring back to reality that when they're talking about animals or rivers and waters or the soil that we are all just equal to this and the lives that we have constructed I think that this is funny because you know you and I both being lawyers like this is just such an artificial world our careers are so artificial it's actually made up it's just interesting to kind of self-reflect on our own professional responsibility in the colony but then our personal obligations to our ancestors and to this land and Mother Earth. And I think for me, the book has really split me raw because you kind of shift between, you know, your reflections and your own lived life and go, what is the meaning of all of this right now? When you were talking about our obligations to the ancestors it did make me reflect on that first essay by Dr. Chelsea Bonds, where it does start out as a letter to her ancestor and then it's signed as love from your mum. And she says, we were made to be good ancestors. Good ancestors sustain the forest that they cannot clear. Good Aborigines, meanwhile, only ever sustain the institutions that insist upon our demise. And so I tell you this, my dear children, never be the good Aborigines they insist you to be, for it is in our being as ancestors here now that we are still here now. Was there any poems that you really felt you keep coming back to? or I just kept coming back to this one by Pansy Rose Napaljari. It was originally published in the 90s, but... It almost speaks to present concerns about an anxiety that we might have as Aboriginal people about what do our ceremonies mean in this new post-colonial, post-apocalyptic reality that we live in and we now have to contend with these 
colonialist wants and desires. And it made me think of that when she says, ceremonies performed, red nagas, white headbands, microphone, cameras flashing, more, more. She kind of juxtaposes that spiritual ceremony against this consumerism and it made my heart ache actually it left me raw and I think yeah I still don't even have the words for it the title of that piece is the changing face of the jukapa and that's their word for law the whole piece takes you on this journey of that ancient jukapa that starts under the shade of the mulga tree Two wrinkled faced or yapper men sit yarning about their good old days when life was what it was really meant to be. You know how these stories speak to each other? The new true anthem by Kevin Gilbert is just such a piece that I'd so relate to. Despite what Dorothea has said about the sun scorched land, you've never really loved her nor sought to make her grand. You pollute all the rivers and litter every road. Your barbaric graffiti cuts scars where tall trees grow. The beaches and the mountains are covered with your shame. Injustices rule supremely, despite your claims to fame. The mud-polluted rivers are fenced off from the gaze of travellers and the thirsty for foreign hooves to graze. A tyranny now rules your soul to your own image blind. A callousness and uncouth ways now hallmarks of your kind. Australia, oh Australia, you could stand proud and free. We weep in bitter anguish at your hate and tyranny. The scarred black bodies wreathing humanity locked in chains. Land theft and racial murder you boast on all your gains. In wood chip and uranium, the anguish death you spread will leave the children of the land a heritage that's dead. Australia, oh Australia, you could stand tall and free. We weep in bitter anguish at your hate and tyranny. This book is not for the weak. This book is a serious piece of truth-telling and these pieces aren't just about saying to the reader, come with an open mind. They're actually saying to the reader, actually, if you're going to read us, do something. Like if you are going to sit down with this book, These words are speaking to you to do something about this country's unfinished business. And I think it's also a call for peace. In what way? The way in which the pieces highlight injustices, the way in which the pieces take your soul on this kind of rolling journey to our ancestors, which is such a special gift to amazing pieces that, open the reader up to the Jukapa, which is the law within the central desert, and then to other pieces that highlight systemic injustices. 
if you go full circle on these, then you will be incinerated. But what happens after the fire and it rains? Well, there's new growth and there's new life and the hope that comes through is what happens after the fire is all said and done. It is about new life and about hope and especially with pieces like the one by Kevin Gilbert, it really shines a light on the way that colonialism has just totally destroyed the landscape here. And when you think about that in the context of 2020 and the fires at the start of the year, then that's the only conversation that you can really have, especially since the context behind those fires is that Aboriginal people haven't been able to maintain our land management practices. And what happens when we aren't able to do that is there's a lot of fuel on the ground and we have these really destructive fires that destroy the land and destroy the animal life. On Bruce Pascoe's essay, Bleat Beneath a Blanket, he talks about this sense of imagination, but when he takes the reader through his essay, that's how we lived. You know, imagining living in a world where people in colder climates built substantial houses in which they could stand upright and draw on the walls and ceiling. Houses were found all over the country, some accommodating over 50 people. One was used as a mess hall for the sailors of a ship. How did the owners feel watching others carouse beneath their silver roof? All the houses reflected the taste of the owners. So even when he introduces this sense of imagining, it's going back to actually how we lived. And, you know, he says on the bottom of that page, six words right there, this is still a colonised world. He explains quite clearly and succinctly the way that our languages were poetry within themselves. And I thought that was a really beautiful point that he made. He says, Well, our people have always sung in verse. We named a bend in the river Cardinia after the first rays of the morning sun. We named a hill Belloween, which may mean either a view from where the water sparkles like fire or perhaps leaning on our elbow by the fire, or a more subtle blend of the two. But whoever created the expression was a poet, and perhaps a poet long before Europe had chanced upon the idea of aesthetic language. We often get told to us as First Nations is, oh, your language is dead, or it's irrelevant, or it's shame to be spoken about, or, or it's lost. And I just think that in these pages and especially as well more broadly through Blackfellow Book Club and what the community is doing, language is certainly not lost. Our languages are alive. They are pulsating through this earth and they speak to us. And I think Evelyn Araluen's essay really speaks to the hypocrisy of that criticism in the sense that the English language was used as a weapon against us in trying to assimilate us to be more white. So the idea that the way that we use the English language is now not good enough for you 
is almost laughable and there's kind of an irony I found throughout the book the way that a lot of the Aboriginal poets have flipped English on its head. When you were speaking, what made me think about Aboriginal English and one of the pieces that flips the English language on its head through Aboriginal English and the way in which Blackfellas use English is Millard Mob the best. It's for Patsy Shadworth and the Burralula kids. And, you know, this piece even goes to the degree of, of giving the reader the definitions of words at the end of it. But I love how, um, how they use English to just go, you know what? We are going to do your language even better than you. We like land for singing us mob song for ceremony, culture, land and law. Millard mob, strong in that radio and in dreaming us proud. The flow of the whole entire piece is just amazing in the way in which it uses English and, and Aboriginal English. But then it's also such a gift that it is explaining and setting out for the reader the actual definitions of terms as well. How amazing are mob at language and creativity and storytelling? I think about my great-grandparents. They were fluent speakers in more than one non-English language and they lived in an era where they would have been persecuted if they had been caught by white people speaking that language and the fear in them was so strong that if they were caught speaking their language their children would be removed from them and in that context where language has literally been weaponized against us the fact that we can still show up and be so creative and poetic and use language in a way that makes you feel and that rips you raw I think is a testament to our resilience as writers as storytellers as poets and I think that's what's beautiful about Firefront. Just the straight talking in this book has risen I think to a level where it just takes your soul and it's just like we will transform you to a a different kind of realm through language and when you were speaking it reminded me you know even of my own grandparents I was taking my nan back to Pilliga because she grew up as a child in the Pilliga scrub and then throughout western New South Wales my grandparents I guess I've never heard them sing in language or it was never proactively taught because of how it was weaponized but taking her on a journey back through to her country I had this incredible experience of her just starting to sing somewhere over the rainbow in Wiradjuri. And I just thought, wow, when you create and hold space for people, these amazing things come through and the ancestors speak. think like a really nice way to end would be there is this lovely piece called honey to lips bottle brush and there is something about the ending that feels like 
I guess, a relevant place to end our conversation because it's about this coming back to ancestors and spirits. And this last paragraph in this piece, which I think has probably really a lot to speak to in terms of where to go now, and I'll quote this from Honey to Lips Bottle Brush by Charmaine, Paper Talk Green. Dance, ground, feet, sand, reunite, connect. Still, wind, still, ancestors, come to visit. Gentle kiss giving to young spirits. Reassuring for the onward journey. Right here, on this land, right here. That was Teela Reid and Marinda Dutton from Blackfella Book Club in conversation about Firefront, an anthology of First Nations poetry and power curated by Alison Whitaker and published by the University of Queensland Press in 2020. We'll put links to the Blackfella Book Club Instagram page and the Firefront anthology on our podcast page. That's sydneyreviewofbooks.com forward slash podcast. There you'll also find other episodes, or you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, I think you'll also like the episode where poet Eileen Chong reads her essay about writing in place. It's called Climbing the Hill. Are they Scottish poems? Australian poems? Singaporean poems? I'm the SIB editor, Katrina Menzies-Pike. Our producer is Alison Chan, ably assisted by Alice Desmond. Elena Godwin did the sound design and mixing. The SRB is produced at the Writing and Society Research Centre at Western Sydney University. This podcast was made possible by funding from the Create New South Wales Digitise Initiative. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we work, the Baramatical people of the Darug Nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and the struggles for justice are ongoing. We acknowledge all the traditional custodians of the lands this digital platform reaches. Thanks for listening.